0: Okay, how's the sound? Good. What a difference uh, three days makes. We're all here. There's a stillness in the room. Beautiful to see that. Just a reminder, uh, these talks are being recorded, so you can just... Uh, Listen in an embodied way, let the words flow through you, don't have to hang on to anything. And maybe listening so that there's some sense of you're engaged in some activity of practice. So a a young monk went and joined a monastery. And um, at this monastery, their primary practice was copying the texts, you know, this is in the ancient time, they didn't have Xerox machines, so everything had to be meticulously copied by hand. And uh, this new monk was kind of an upstart, uh, kind of a, a creative thinker, and he said to the master, you know, we're copying from copies, so if there's a problem, we're just going to keep propagating that problem. And Masha said, "You know, son, we've been doing this for this way for 500 years. I'm sure it's fine." And then the the, the abbot, the master, began to think about it. He's like, "You know, it's kind of a good point. I should go down there and check out the original texts. And uh, the abbot was gone for some amount of time, and so they became concerned, like, "Where where did he go?" And the the new novice monk was sent to go find him, and he. Went to the basement and he saw the uh, the abbot was uh, weeping and kind of like banging his head against the table. <laughs> he was really really distraught and he kept saying, "We forgot the R. We forgot the R. We forgot the R. We forgot the R." And the uh, the novice monk said, "I'm sorry. What 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 do you mean? We forgot the R?" And he said, "The word was celebrate." <laughs> I'm sure there are many other things lost in translation. <clears throat> so tonight I'd like to share some Dharma reflections about metta practice, um, particularly in connection to equanimity and um, some other musings in the territory. Um, <clears throat> I find, you know, we we did some chanting last night, uh, which was fun. And uh, I use that as a kind of point of transition. Like I found that in daily practice, if I just sit without something to kind of transition, then I'm just sitting in, you know, the email I just wrote or the conversation I just had or the to-do list that I've been trying to check off. So one of the ways that I use as a transition is to do a chant. And it's kind of just intended to evoke a kind of more practice-y, a softening of the heart, an embodiment of vibration. So in that spirit, I'd like to chant the instructions the Buddha gave for cultivating metta, which Donald shared, but I know this is a chant. I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving-kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above and below, around and everywhere, add to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So this word abide, Brahma, Vihara, Brahma is the Hindu god of creation, so associated with divinity. Uh, And Vihara is actually just a dwelling or a a home. So Brahma Vihara is a heavenly abode or divine abode. And this abiding doesn't sound so much like a doing. You know, we say we're giving metta or sending metta or practicing metta, but more like a that we can learn to abide or live or rest with a heart infused with this energy as a way of being that can even become our default mode. And our default mode profoundly affects how we react to the world. When someone yells at me, when the heart is not filled with metta, I yell back. When the heart is filled with metta, it goes to, wow, Oh, that person must be having a hard day. I wonder, I hope they're okay you know, it immediately kind of goes to compassion. It's like we give everyone the benefit of the doubt rather than indulging in our habitual judgments and compassion arises instead of anger. A practice I have is the practice to try to bring a heart imbued with metta to all, to everything, but especially the mundane obligatory tasks in life things I don't necessarily want to do but have to be done, taking out the trash, emptying the dishwasher, doing taxes, you know, any number of these kind of mundane tasks to which I tend to have a lot of resistance. But when you bring the heart of metta to it, it becomes an act of devotion. It becomes a recognition that the task is a way of caring for someone or something. Uh, the mundane becomes sacred and the chore becomes... Uh, Practice. The instructions for loving kindness from the Dalai Lama. He says, there's no need for temples, no need for complicated philosophies. My brain and my heart are my temples, and my philosophy is kindness. And he goes on to say, be kind whenever possible. as always possible. Could probably just end the talk here. It's so simple, be kind whenever possible, it's always possible. And um, the Buddha said this also, and you know, he really meant it. The, the Buddha described this in a very radical, violent, graphic way. And it's violent imagery that's a bit over the top, but I, I share it because I think it's important because it makes a very important point. So the Buddha says, even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, one who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be following the teachings. This is the high bar. (laughs) Maybe aspirational at best. But also a reminder of the limitless capacity of the heart. The teachings hold that all of us have the potential to develop this kind of an unlimited heart. The Buddha says, you should, train, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We will utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness. This is how you should train. And I want to share in the spirit of uh, this Monday being uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's Earth Day. I wanna share some of his words that are quite similar.
1: This is the kind of understanding goodwill that the nonviolent resistor can follow if he is true to the love ethic. And so he can rise to the point of being able to look into the face of his most violent opponent and say in substance, Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering by capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And so throw us in jail and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Senority perpetrators, violence into our communities at the midnight hours and drag us out on some wasteland road and beat us and leave us half dead. And we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom, but we will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. They...
0: Again, a very high bar. Uh, and it comes from the understanding that the um, mind filled with hate and aggression is a poison to ourselves. You know, the bandits are long gone. Um... The Buddha often described ill will or anger as a kind of poison. And, you know, maybe we know that feeling. Like there's a kind of like a... a, We know that it affects our health, and there can be kind of like a, a sickness when the mind is filled with anger. So the Buddha says, when deliverance of mind by loving kindness is developed no limiting action remains there just as a vigorous vigorous conch blower could make himself heard without difficulty in the four quarters so too when the deliverance of mind by loving kindness is developed in this way no limiting action remains <clears throat> i have it on my to-do list to get a conch shell and blow it the next time i read that quote I love this phrase, no limiting action remains. Now it's pointing to that when we have ill will, anger, resentment, irritations, frustration, boredom, all the things that are not metta, uh, these states of heart and mind, they limit us. They color our perception in a way that makes it hard to see the liberative truths of how things are, and they agitate the system in a way that makes it really hard to be peaceful. In many religions, you get punished for your sins. Buddhism doesn't directly have a concept of sin, but if it did, it's like the sins themselves would be the punishment. I it's the anger itself, that's the punishment. It's been said that holding a grudge is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. The Buddha described it as picking up a hot coal to throw at someone, and in the process, we get burned. The forces of non metta, or for that matter, non karuna, non buddhita, non upekka, impede our ability to rest in any sense of peace or well being. I'm going to digress slightly uh, and just talk about the benefits of metta. There's a little sutta, and it's like, Really, it's just 12 things, it's a list of 12 things, the benefits of metta. One sleeps easily, wakes easily, and dreams no evil dreams. Pretty good. Human beings will love you, non human beings will love you, devas will protect you, these uh, subtle celestial beings will protect you. Neither fire, poison, nor weapons can touch one. And I suggest we take this metaphorically. One's mind gains concentration quickly. Metta is a concentration practice. One's complexion is bright and radiant, and one dies unconfused and is not born again into this world. And even if we um, don't invoke the idea of reincarnation, like... A moment of metta. We are born as the person with an open heart, not the person who's angry. So I want to talk a little bit about equanimity. This is upeka. It's the fourth of the Brahma Viharas. Um, it appears on many of the Buddhist lists. Those of you that have studied the lists have seen it on many lists. It's the tenth of the paramis, the qualities of heart that are essential to cultivate for awakening. It um, appears on the Seven Factors of Awakening. Uh, And in many of these lists, it's the last one on the list suggesting it's kind of a culmination of practice. And it's spoken about in different ways. Equanimity is both a quality that we can actively cultivate And it's also more like something that naturally emerges from a path of practice. So when mindfulness is strong and it's balanced with interest and energy, tranquility and some absorption, equanimity arises from those conditions. And even what we're practicing here is some form of those things. So we're doing an equanimity practice. And I've also noticed in working with newer practitioners is often one of the first things that they report. It's often something that brings us to practice. I know I came to practice wanting to have more balance, more emotional balance, more ease of mind, more stability of mind. And it's often one of the first fruits that emerges. You know, when I teach beginners in classes, two, three weeks into the class, they start reporting that there are less... Um, less agitated, a little bit more easygoing. Minds mind is not as reactive. And this becomes a virtuous circle because we get, we see these early on in practice that keeps us practicing. So equanimity, this is a very good translation. Uh, equus... Um, meaning equal, and animus, meaning mind, so an even-mindedness, an equal-mindedness, a balance of mind. Um, One of my favorite definitions of equanimity is unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight and metta. These classical Buddhist insights, Ruth King describes them as nothing's perfect, nothing's permanent, and nothing's personal. And maybe insight also points to an understanding of karma, that our actions of body, speech, and mind have consequences. And in this lawful unfolding of experience, there's some way in which it couldn't be otherwise. This moment is the product of so many causes and conditions. But we do have the agency to water the seeds of what's wholesome in this moment to influence the next one. So equanimity is the opposite of being overwhelmed or agitated. Um, Various similes used to describe this. uh, The mind like bamboo, that it bends instead of breaking. Or like a mountain, steady, unmovable, unshakable. Unshakable mind is a term that I really like. And then when the mind does wobble, um, it much more quickly comes back into balance. So as Kaira was saying this afternoon, the four Brahma Viharas, the four faces or flavors of love, are very interrelated and interdependent. Um, the cultivation of all of them requires some level of equanimity. If the mind is totally off-kilter and spinning, you know, impossible to maintain or sustain any kind of state of being or any cultivation practice, maybe you felt that way when you got here. But as the activity of mind comes down, calms down, then the cultivation becomes more and more available. All of the Brahmaviyars have an aspect of metta. It's clear and explicit in metta, because kindness, and in Karuna, where we're uh, bringing kindness to suffering, and then the invoking of joy rather than jealousy, it's success of another as a kind of form of kindness. And I would say that, in many ways, metta is the foundation of equanimity. I'll talk more about that. Basically, it's a state in which we can bring metta to all things. And as was noted in the hall and in some of the discussion groups, sometimes there's a kind of razor's edge between um, nothing really matters as a kind of liberative statement and nothing really matters as a kind of nihilistic statement. And um, for me, the, the way to tell the difference is really in the feeling tone, that there's a kind of warmth or an uplift to equanimity. And when the mind goes to nihilism, it's down, down, down. Um, of course, we naturally preference those we already love versus the stranger or the person who causes us some difficulty. On the one hand, this is kind of natural. We human beings involved in small bands of people and um, belonging to the group was vital for survival. Like separation or alienation from the group often meant death. I think this is one of the reasons that this is such a primal need to feel belonging and to not be isolated. A strong drive we have to have uh, strong social connections. And on the other hand, the loyalty to our tribe is so much the root of problems in this world. We see this taking place all around us, both on the micro and the macro. And practice advises us to balance out this inequality of benevolence. So in metta practice, we're we're directly cultivating what's sometimes called impartiality of mind. I love this term, impartiality of mind. So we start by practicing where it's easy, loosening or lubricating the benevolent, benevolent heart, where it naturally flows. And then increasingly widening the circle. Easy being, the benefactor, flows easily. And then you can even have degrees of the dear friend. You can have the dear friend that can do no wrong, and then you can have the dear friend that's sometimes flaky. Or the dear friend that's very flaky. The dear friend that annoys the hell out of you, but you still love them. Then we come to the neutral person. We'll give instructions for practicing with the neutral person tomorrow morning. And we've been repeatedly emphasizing that the practice reveals what's in the way of the radiant heart, what's in the way of metta. So when we work with a difficult person, or I like to say more accurately the person who causes us difficulty, because the difficulty is really in us, not in them, uh, it reveals all the things we're clinging to that people should be and act in accordance with our preferences, that they should be and act in accordance with our values, with our intentions. We cling to the notion that people should have certain qualities, like they be kind or fair or ethical. I've had an enormous amount of suffering in my life um, wanting the world to be fair. <laughs> believing that, you know, everything is a meritocracy and the best will rise to the top. And um, this has not been my experience. So it's something to let go of. And by and large, people aren't going to change. So, you know, we can certainly change or even um, abandon relationships when it's necessary for our own protection or the protection of others. But whatever we do, we suffer unless we make peace with the fact that people are not always who we want them to be. In fact, people are rarely who we want them to be. And this letting go, this making peace, opens a possibility to loving them uh, more and more, despite their shortcomings, or sometimes even because of their shortcomings. Like, we might see that this person who causes me torment has had very difficult causes and conditions, and so we might have compassion for what they've had to go through that manifests in their behavior that's not uh, helpful. There's a story uh, inspired by one of the Buddhist texts in which some monks were in a remote cave in the Himalayas practicing metta. There's the head monk who is quite actualized, uh, his brother, his best friend, uh, the fourth monk was the head monk's enemy. He just could never get along, oil and vinegar. The uh, fifth monk was very old, like they were concerned that he could croak at any moment. And the last monk they called the useless monk because he was snoring all the time and shirking all his duties. So the band- bandits show up. I once gave a series of talks on meta, and someone raised their hand and said, uh, where did you grow up? <laughs> and I said, why do you ask? She said, you seem quite obsessed with bandits. <laughs> so bandits show up. And they say, this is a really great cave. You know, it's really hidden. It's really hard to find. this would be a great hideout for us. So they decided that they were going to kill all the monks and take the hideout. And the head monk said, you know, well, you don't, you don't have to kill us. You know, we, we promise we won't tell anyone. We'll just go our separate way. He was trying to negotiate with them. And um, the best he was able to negotiate is that the head monk could pick one of the monks to sacrifice, and then the others would be allowed to go free. So who do you think he picked? How many think he picked himself? How many of you think he picked his brother? No one. How many of you think he picked his best friend? None of you. How about the old monk who's about to die anyway? Okay, a few of you. And what about the useless monk? Okay, Maybe the useless monk got the most votes. Um, so the story goes that the head monk's meta was so perfected that he couldn't decide. That he... Had the same level of regard for himself, his brother, his best friend, his enemy, the old monk, the useless monk. That, you know, the, the loss of any of those lives would have the same impact, the preservation of any of those lives would have the same impact. This is not our usual way of thinking. And um, then the story ends, which is kind of unsatisfactory ending. <laughs> So I've crafted a new ending, <laughs> and in my ending, the bandits are so moved by this display of practice <laughs> that they join the monks in the cave. <laughs> but I love this story because it, 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 you know, it really challenges us to think about what the perfection of metta would be—that we could truly be indifferent. Um, to truly hold all beings in this kind of limitless regard. One of my teachers tells a story in which she was asked to greet the highly revered Zen master who was coming to visit. And uh, he got kind of excited, maybe a little starstruck and flustered. And so greeting him at the airport, uh, my teacher said, how do you like it here? And the monk, the Zen master, without missing a beat, said, I like it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> this is the impartial mind, you know, the the mind heart that we can cultivate, that likes it everywhere, that loves the enemy and the stranger and the beloved and all beings equally. This heart, mind, this chitta, that uh, wishes well for itself and for this body, not from an uh, egoic place, but from a place of reverence and respect for this precious human life. The mind where metta is like a sunbeam or a gentle rain that falls evenly on everyone. So this impartial mind that we're actively cultivating in this practice is a cornerstone of equanimity. What I find actually quite beautiful about this path of practice is that, um, you know, we're practicing for no limiting action to remain, as the Buddha said, and then the limitations of the heart reveal themselves as we've said over and over again. And um, these oft hidden energies that we aspire to transcend or transmute or just compost or energetically express in some way uh, they show up, and uh, they're grist for the mill. It's kind of like the curriculum that's on offer for us. Ajahn Suchicho says, when unresolved energies begin to bubble up and flood the heart, they often project onto circumstances in the external world. One's thoughts acquire tremendous drama, concocting scenarios that spin the heart. So maybe you've seen this happen. The unresolved energies of the heart bubble up, as they inevitably do, and then we think it's the person that's breathing loudly next to us, or the person that's sniffling, or the person that's a little bit restless, or maybe we don't like the food, or maybe our bed's not comfortable, or the bathroom is out of order. You know, the energy has to go somewhere, and so we can project this on the center, on the teachers, on the managers, on the practice itself. You know, you think I should have gone to the healing sound bath retreat in Maui, <laughs> it would have been better. So what's the story that the mind's concocting? You know, can we, can we know this story? Can we let the story go and come to what's actually happening in this moment? How does this feel? What's manifesting in the body? Where is there pressure and tingling and pulsation and vibration and energy to shine the kind, um, loving awareness on that experience to invite it to be felt and heard and digested? And, you know, these energies can be deeply painful and there can be a sense of helplessness and struggle This is real. I don't want to deny that in any way. I love the words of Leonard Cohen. I know the burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night. The guru says it's empty, but it doesn't mean it's light. This practice requires some perseverance, some faith, some courage, persistence. And at the same time, most of what we experience when we use words like difficulty or struggle, as some version of this. We're having an experience we don't like, usually unpleasant, and we're trying to have a different experience. We're clinging to our desire or preference for a different experience that's not here, and so we suffer the heart of metta, the impartial mind, is not chasing anything, not running away from anything, there's no push, no pull, no contention, it's just resting, welcoming, whatever's present now, with the recognition that this moment is the product of countless causes and conditions. And so, as I said, it really could be no other way. There's a kind of perfection in this moment and then we can rest, you know, there's there's nothing to do. The third Zen ancestor said, the great way is not difficult for those who hold no attachment to preferences. The way is perfect as vast space is perfect, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess, where the mind exists undisturbed in the way, there's no objection to anything in the world. And accepting this moment doesn't mean we abandon all agency, because how we respond to this moment will influence future moments. When we respond to this moment with contention and aggression and resistance, we're sowing the seeds for more of those qualities of heart. We can muster a response that's filled with kindness. Maybe it's not even filled with kindness, but it's intended to be filled with kindness or non-hate. This is a kind of middle ground for me. I uh, did a long retreat and I was working with a difficult person. This person is very difficult and very difficult for a lot of people, public figure, and uh, I just couldn't get to metta until I aspired for non-hate. It was a kind of middle ground. Like, can I just be at non-hate? And from non-hate, I could get to metta. when we respond with kindness or an intention for kindness, then those are the seeds that we're sowing for the future. You know, we can relish the moments when they appear of peacefulness, contentedness. I know they come and go. Most of you have had some moments, however brief, of um, stepping into something more spacious. We can savor them, we can let them nourish us, we can develop a kind of muscle memory for those states of being that can support us when things are really difficult to know the possibility that that's a possibility for our own heart. And at the same time, the most profound insights and growth usually come from what's difficult. The kind of maturity of practice to see that... uh, this is expressed in many ways. The, the way around is through. The obstacles themselves are the path. Whatever is in the way is the way. You know, to polish a jewel requires friction. This is from Tore NG's Bodhisattva Vow. How can we be ungrateful to anyone or anything? Even though someone may be a fool. We can be compassionate. If someone turns against us, speaking ill and treating us bitterly, it is best to bow down. This is actually the Buddha appearing to us, finding ways to free us from our own attachments, the very ones that have made us suffer again and again and again. Now on each flash of thought, a lotus flower blooms, and on each flower a Buddha. May we share this mind with all beings so that we in the world together may grow in wisdom. The expression of metta can be as simple as bowing down to what hinders us. Uh, And that transforms, you know, when we have that attitude. Each flash of thought, whatever the thought is, has a seed of awakening in it the lotus flower booming and the Buddha appearing. And as has been shared, you know, sometimes we stick with the cultivation of metta in the face of these energies. We kind of like let them be in the background, let them not consume a lot of attention. Sometimes that's hard to do or impossible, and it's more skillful to um, hold these energies in the light of awareness, to use what sometimes we call the vipassana toolkit to move towards to practice the seminal teaching of the Buddha that suffering is to be known. We can fully know this experience of suffering and we can see the causes of that suffering and notice where we're clinging and use our path activity as a catalyst for this process of letting go. There are times... Where you can actually miss equanimity. I think I alluded to this before. Like I've had the experience of feeling kind of flat or dull or bored, and then I've had a teacher kind of go through uh questions, you know, are there any hindrances present? Well, you yeah, know, not really. I mean a little dullness or boredom, but nothing major. How's the body? Body's yeah, okay, more or less content. Um the absence of stimulation, the absence of a problem to solve, the absence of a hindrance can be so unfamiliar that we just kind of miss it. I think sometimes we expect these moments of contentedness or peacefulness to be a kind of ebullient, jumping up and down, joyful kind of experience. And actually, in my own experience, the most profound The most blissful days are actually quite simple. You know, they don't have a lot of exuberant energy in it, which can actually, exuberant energy can actually be agitating. Over-exuberance is one of the near enemies of joy. In uh, February and March of 2017, I sat the 2 months long retreat here uh, at Spirit Rock, This was right after the election. Um, And uh, not hard to guess, but I was rooting for the other candidate. And um, right after the inauguration, I surrendered my cell phone and I went into silence for two months. And uh, I was a deeply concerned citizen. I was involved in some political activism. And uh, for the first few weeks, the predominant experience and it was what I began to call dread. Just a pit in the stomach filled with this, like, huge amount of anxiety. Uh, but, well, you're on retreat, right? So I did what I thought you are supposed to do on retreat. I uh, became obsessed with finding the Dharma jiu that would take down the dread. Tried everything course, the dread persisted. And then I finally, I brought this up in a practice discussion meeting, and it felt kind of like a confession, you know, meditating for 25 years. (laughs) I'm like, I have no agency over this mind state. There's some belief that I should be able to transcend it or make it go away. My teacher said, and this was a this has been a sea change. It was a sea change on that retreat, and it's been a sea change in my practice. A teacher said, "I'm really sorry that you're suffering," and he paused dramatically. He said, "But I'm glad that you feel dread because it means that your heart still cares." And uh, this was such a shift for me that I, I was pathologizing the feeling of dread because it's unpleasant, wanting it to go away, thinking it shouldn't be there, thinking that something in my practice should uh, create conditions in which it wouldn't arise. But in fact, practice probably created conditions making it more likely to arise. When I was able to connect with dread and its connection to my sincere wishes for the welfare of the world... That was a shift into compassion. And unlike the collapsed state of wallowing in dread, the stance of compassion was more energizing. It's like I could, rather than resting in the the story of the dread, which is all the bad things that could happen or were probably happening, the mind was more resting in the love that gave rise to the experience of dread. And the dread is still here. <laughs> but I take it as a reminder that this is the sign of a loving heart and try to meet that experience of dread. Um, even like a sort of, there you are, I dread. Thank you for reminding me that I still care. I'm not numb, I'm not jaded and cynical and haven't given up hope. From Ramdas. Uh, Who's quoting Mother Teresa? I'm not interested in being a lover. I'm only interested in being love. In our culture, we think of love as a relational thing. I love you, you're my lover. The ego is built around relationship, the soul is not. It only wants to be love. It is a true joy, for example, to turn someone whom you didn't initially like into the beloved. One way I practice doing this is by placing a photograph of a politician with whom I intensely disagree on my puja table. Each morning when I wake up, I say good morning to the Buddha, to my guru, and to the other holy beings there. And it's with a different spirit I say, Hello, Mr. Politician. It reminds me every day how far I have to go to see the beloved in everyone. Mother Teresa has described this as seeing Christ in all his distressing disguises. When I realized that Mother Teresa was actually involved in an intimate love affair with each and every one of the poor and lepers she was picking up from the gutters of India, I thought to myself, that's the way to play the game of love. And that's the way I've been training myself for the last 25 years to see and be with the beloved everywhere. There's a, a famous Zen story that I love. Um, Zen master Yunnan, who lived in the 10th century in uh, southern China, was considered to be you know, an awakened being. And one time a monk came to him and said, what's the highest, most profound teaching of all the Buddhas and all the masters? Uh, and I love these stories where they try to just distill the Dharma into one pithy statement. You know, all of the teachings contained in this statement. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> the master said, an appropriate response is the most profound teachings of all the Buddhists and the patriarchs. And it's also what we're doing here, you know, learning to cultivate an appropriate response. A response we might call wise or skillful, liberative, forward-leading, rather than reacting from our habitual, conditioned response. So I mentioned at the beginning of the retreat that one of my aspirations in life is to bring more heartfulness, more mindfulness, more presence into Really, everything, all domains of life, but especially areas where it seems conspicuously absent—like um, corporate environments, law firms, banks—I've uh, been fortunate in my law practice. You know, I'm not a litigator; my work is largely collaborative, and this is why I've been able to uh, last for. Uh, 30 years, one month, and 24
1: days.
0: (laughs) Uh, But it's so strange, you know, when I'm here, like this land is special, no doubt. I've spent over a year on this land sitting where you're sitting and uh, just showing up at the land. There's a kind of muscle memory that shows up. A smile comes to my face every time I'm on this land. Uh, And there's access to more presence, more mindfulness, more heartfulness. Where does that all go when you step into a conference room? No, it's the same body, it's the same heart, it's the same mind. Um, And for me, the key has been uh, to see the giving of my skills and abilities as an act of generosity, as an act of devotion to try to connect with the tender hearts of the people I work with, whether or not they're interested in that, Um, and to see that one can practice Dhamma in anything, that even drafting a legal document is preventing future suffering. And I sometimes wonder, like, what would it be if we all brought that spirit to whatever it is we do in the world, to see it with reverence and respect and devotion and all the people that we have to deal with to bring that quality of heart to them. Sometimes we can be addicted to our suffering or find it really hard to let go because maybe it's become part of our identity in some way. So This is from The Onion. Inspired man bolts out of bed at 3 a.m. to jot down a great new worry. Patterson, New Jersey, quickly kicking off his sheets and reaching for a notepad on his nightstand, local 27-year-old Kyle Dowling reportedly sprang out of bed at 3 a.m. yesterday to jot down an idea for a brand new worry. Sometimes the best, most crippling anxieties come to you in the middle of the night, so it's really good to have a pen and paper nearby (laughs) to record them. If I think of a new paralyzing fear and I don't immediately write it down, there's a good chance I'll totally forget about it (laughs) when I wake up four hours later. Dowling confirmed to reporters that the new worry was even greater than he first thought. (laughs) Another um, caution flag for practice is that sometimes we mistake cultivation for a sense that we have to become someone else some better version of ourselves. And I find that in this culture, there's a kind of noble aspiration for self-improvement that can easily kind of slide into a kind of like almost self-violence. There's a denial of the basic goodness of what's here already. Uh, And a quote I often share, it's from Jim Sinclair, he's a prominent activist for the autistic community, uh, and it... It's not a comment about autism, but it more a comment of a stream of thinking that actually is, is quite familiar. It's even somewhere in this psyche. He says, when my parents say, I wish my child did not have autism, what they're really saying is, I wish the child I have did not exist, and I wish I had a different non-autistic child instead. This is what we hear when you mourn over our existence. This is what we here, when you pray for a cure, that your fondest wish for us is that someday we will cease to be and strangers you can love will move in behind our faces. Every time I read that, it's just like a gut punch because I recognize that sort of quality of um, self-loathing or self-aversion, um, even... Uh, Parts of myself that I might have had the idea that, you know, I've got to annihilate them. I've got to get rid of this part of myself. Um, and this practice is inviting us to meet even that with metta. Bringing metta to all parts of ourselves, even the parts that we don't like. So I want to talk a little bit about the dharma dharmas, the Kaira brought this in in the afternoon session. Um, over the past few years, I've been practicing with Tinnasura and Kinsaro. Uh, at least a few of you have been to their retreat. Uh, and this stream of Buddhism combines the Thai forest monastic tradition. Both my teachers were monastics for um, 12 and 16 years at the Thai Forest Monastery in England. And then they they learned um, these Kuan Yin dharmas from Master Xinhua, the land of the 10,000 Buddhas in uh, Ukiya, somewhere not far from here. And uh, I want to share a couple of images with you. Well, it's probably not going to happen. Um, <clears throat> oh it is happening okay there we go Uh, the first one is um, actually something that uh, you have at the we have at the back of the room this is a depiction of Kuan Yin Um, you can see the figure is somewhat androgynous Kuan Yin is said in, in different iterations, as Cairo Ju was saying, is um, more masculine, more feminine, or, or androgynous, or non-binary. And in this posture that she's taken is called the posture of royal ease. So you can see that, like, her hand is touching the platform. It's very stable. She's relaxed and comfortable. But this leg that's lifted is the sign that she's ready to spring into action to respond to whatever suffering needs to be responded to kind of like a buddhist superhero Yin is said to be the embodiment of wisdom and compassion fully awakened yet committed to stay close to the human realm to help ease the suffering of the world she hears the sounds of the world with ease the cries of the world with ease. Um, And the other depiction, which Cairo also alluded to, is, or spoke about, is um, here they are with their thousand arms, eleven heads to see in every direction, a thousand arms, each of which has an eye, the eye of wisdom, and also the eye that can reach out into the world and see what needs to be tending, And then 43 primary arms, which have implements of healing. Medicine for the sick. Suttas for those who need wisdom. uh, Potions and candles and a sword to cut through the bonds of ignorance. And uh, invoking this image of this being. And uh, they're resourced. You know, they're not just like... Wandering into the danger zone, wondering what to do. They've got all this. They're set up to do this. <laughs> and this is what our training is, is helping us do, to, to access the, that part of our own heart. It's a representation. I find the external representation helpful to have this image, to um, chant the name of Kuan Yin, to embody even touching the head to the Earth as a way of giving back all the afflictive energies, to their source. But more profoundly, we're pointing to the capacity that we all have to be, to access this part of ourself, the Kuan Yin within, who can listen to the sound, our own sounds, our internal sounds, and the sounds of the world at ease. And it's become a kind of a refuge, you know. Um, this is when you take refuge in the Buddha or the Dharma, or the Sangha. There's some sense of surrender. That we recognize that we're not in it alone, that we're part of a larger system. Um, and then we have these powerful supports. Beth spoke about having, you know, a teacher at your back or a lineage at your back. And I have often had this palpable feeling like Kuan Yin has my back. And it's a tremendous inspiration and um, resource. I think it's our birthright as human beings born with human bodies to reclaim this original brightness of the heart, to uncover it, to discover it, to let it shine through. I'll end with a poem. This is called Allow. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild, the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and successes. When loss rips off the door of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In your choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. I found great comfort in these words when loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness fails your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. Thank you for your kind listening. We now have a period of walking until 9 o'clock. And then the final sit. The sit will include chanting.